This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Producing Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These are coming to you from the City University Graduate Center in New York, located on 42nd Street, the heart of Times Square, and the heart of the theatre. This is where Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway all come together. This is where the talent is, and this is where the talent goes out from. It goes out across the country, that which is wonderful, and that which is wonderful comes from across the country to us. The American Theatre Wing is perhaps known for its most prestigious Tony Awards, an award that we created for the achievement of excellence in the theatre. However, the Wing is more than that. It is a year-round program, and it's a program that is devoted to contributing as much as it can to the community through the theatre. For example, these seminars are an outgrowth of the Wing Schools. And the Wing School, at one time, the very best in theatre, came through its doors, taught people like Howard Prince and Rogers and Hammerstein, taught and people like Pat Hingle and Robert Prosky and Hal Linden learned. And there was a cross-section so that everybody knew a little bit about the theatre. We are trying to achieve that in the seminars. It, the Wing, as most of you know, I think, is the longest on-running nonprofit service organization. Our hospital programs, an outgrowth again of contributing. The Stage Door Canteen, which was famous during Second World War. The program of sending live and professional shows to hospitals came out of that, and today we are still doing it. And we're sending theater to nursing homes and to hospitals so that those who can't come to the theater will be able to have theater. And then there's our Saturday Theater for Children program, one of the most unique and important programs that I can think of. We bring live theater to children in their schools, in their neighborhoods. They line up on Saturday mornings, and they buy a ticket to go to the theater. They develop not only a love for the magic of live theater, but it, they develop the habit of buying a ticket and making plans to go to theater. We hope, and we have already seen some of it take place, that they will come to the theater not because of a rave review or because it is a birthday or an anniversary, but because they know theater and they have grown up with theater and they love theater. 
And so that is one more program of the wing. We've talked about working in the theater. We've had uh, the performers, the people that act, the people that perform in the theater. We've had the playwrights and the directors. And now, to put it all together, we have the production seminar. And this is the team, these are the people that make it possible for everybody else to bring magic to theater. I'm going to turn this over to Jean Dalrymple, who will be our moderator on this program. And she will, in turn, introduce to you the wonderful production team of House of Blue Leaves. Thank you very much. It's a very special privilege for today for me to introduce this illustrious panel. These are all wonderful pros, and they have done, of course, as you know, a wonderful job. The Blue Leaves won the Tony, the House of Blue Leaves. Uh, and everyone deserves an individual Tony, I think, for the sort of work they've been doing or he's been doing. Uh, I remarked before we came in that they don't even have a token woman with them today. <laughs> Usually they do. However, I'm going to start. Susie by, uh, Kurtz was here the other day. Yes, but I mean on this production. I uh, told you why. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, we love having Susie here. Uh, she was absolutely brilliant and adorable. And she told us again how she does the little dog, which always breaks my heart. I hope that you, by this time you've all seen this wonderful play, this marvelous production done by these great artists on the panel. Anyway, I'm going to start on my far left there with Jim Russick. He is one who has uh, masterminded all of the newspaper and uh, television and other media advertising for this great play and great production. Uh, he's the president of his own advertising uh, company, uh, Russick Advertising, I guess it's called. And uh, <clears throat> He's coordinated the publicity for many productions and for many productions of the Shakespeare Festival. Uh, Jim Russick. <laughs> Next to him is that great playwright. Mm -hmm. He won the Award of Merit from the American Academy of Arts and Letters for the House of Blue Leaves. He's also written Rich and Famous, Marco Polo Sings a Solo, Landscape of the Body, and Bosoms and Neglect. And he's a very active member of the Dramatist Guild, John Guare. <laughs> and right next to me is a very dear and old friend and a brother of mine in ATPAM. Uh, <laughs> He was the press agent, press representative for, uh, oh, I guess since the beginning of the Shakespeare Festival for Joe Papp. Is that right? Correct. Yes. I remember when, it, when he started. My goodness, it must be over 30 years ago. Yeah. Remarkable. And anyway, he is now doing the press for the House of Blue Leaves. He as he did his, originally. Uh, as he did originally, yes. yes. And, uh, also, he has a, a wonderful staff of people, uh, unlike many other uh, PR people who leave the work to uh, apprentices. 
he has wonderful prose, really, all working for him. I do congratulate him for that. Of course, right here is the big boss. Uh, this is Bernard Gersten, and he's sort of co-moderator with me today. Uh, I don't have to say very much about him, except that he, too, was with Joe Papp for many years, almost 20 years, and responsible for many of the, Royal, the uh, New York Shakespeare's uh, great productions. Uh, I'm going to let him talk about them, but I'll mention a couple of them. Anyway, oh, especially, you know, he was co-producer of a chorus line, which has been running for over 10 years. Twelve. Twelve. My goodness, I can't believe it. But who's well, I said over Nobody. ten. Right. <laughs> Bernard Gersten. <laughs> I always like to leave him in the end. And uh, next to him is Jerry Zachs, who directed this film. Uh, he's, he's a marvelous director, especially of comedy. Uh, I've seen virtually everything that he's done in New York, uh, particularly The Foreigner. I don't know if you all saw that. It was off-Broadway, and it was perfectly delightful. And uh, oh, you did? Good. That's fine. Uh, yeah. And he's also right now directing The Front Page, which opens in three or four weeks. And... Uh, I almost had made it made the mistake again. <laughs> Jerry's <right>. axe. <laughs> and now well, I'm going to turn this over to you because you know how how to start it. Where do you, where do you I want, want to begin? I want to begin at the beginning. Should we tell the the wonderful, interesting story about the House of Blue Leaves yes. and how it grew? Yes. Well, John, why don't you tell it? We'll turn it right over to John because in yeah. the beginning, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm the yeah. moderator. Yeah. In the beginning, let me turn it over to you, John. <laughs> I didn't turn it over yet. In the beginning, there was the play, and even before there was the play, there was the playwright. And we have been actually, all of us, Lincoln Center Theater, all of us assembled here, have been on a wonderful kind of roller coaster joyride over the past seven months now. And it hasn't ended. Each day we're at a different position in the roller coaster. Nine months. Nine months. Yeah. <laughs> How quickly the time goes when you're yeah. having, when you're on a roller coaster. But uh, John should say, from his point of view, when Lincoln Center Theater first said to him, are the rights available to the House of Blue Leaves? And then after John has told us that, I'll back up even further and say a word or two about Lincoln Center Theater and why we said the House of Blue Leaves. So, John. Well, it was terrific because Gregory, I worked for Gregory Mosher at, at Chicago at the Goodman Theater. And so when he was coming to New York working with Bernie Gersten, whom I'd worked with, uh, you know, at the public theater, I mean, the, the, just the, you know, the union of these uh, two men taking over a theater, bringing it back to life. Hey, that was terrific. But I said, what is your manifesto going to be? What is your statement of purpose? And Gregory says, there's not going to be any statement. Our statement of purpose is we're just going to do plays. We're just going to, one day going to open up the door. And there are writers that we believe in. And we believe in David Mamet. And David has two one-acts that are ready right now. That's what he has to do. So that's what we'll open with. I mean, it's, we're not, that's the way we begin. And he said, then I would like to do a production of a play of yours called Gardenia. And I said, that's great, because Gregory had done a brilliant production of it in Chicago at the Goodman. But it seemed that the actors w for it were not available. And so he said, well, he said, I talked to Bernie, and we were discussing. He said, well, let's do The House of Blue Leaves. And uh, 
Oh, I was really pleased, and uh, I mean, really, very, very, really pleased by it. And uh, and as usual, you say, well, a who is, uh, you know, who will direct it, and who will be in it. And uh, as far as I was concerned, uh, that I had seen a production of *The Marriage of Bet and Boo* by Chris Durang that reached a level of such psychic pain that it was extraordinary because it was so funny and so true that I just said, well, if the play is to be done again, uh, I want uh, Jerry Zaks to do it. And th the play had been done originally in 1971. The first act, the play had, had a very, very, I mean, long history for me. It had been, the first act had been done in 1966 at the first full season of the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in Waterford, Connecticut. And uh, then it took me a number of years to know how to write the second act. And the play uh, was done in uh, 1971. And it was a wonderful experience. Merle was the press, it was, you know, did the press on it then. It was an extraordinary experience in 1971. And so it wasn't like I was trying to say, oh, let's get something right. I just didn't want to, strangely, I didn't want to, you know, really mess up what had been a wonderful experience and memory for me. So. Uh, uh, it, I was I trying to prove anything with it? And I was so happy that the play was going to be done again. But the key thing for me was uh, there were two. Was uh, was could we get Jerry Zaks? And we met with Jerry Zaks, and he'll tell about the meeting. I mean, I just and I think it's always interesting how you meet people for the first time in these gavots and minuets and waltzes and tangos and uh, that you do to try to learn each other. Lanford Wilson has a wonderful thing. I said, Lanford, how do you pick a director, somebody you want to know to do your play? He said, in a very, very simple way, he said, I asked the director, tell me the story of my own play. And if his story matches up with my story, then I know we can work together. And which seems very, very simple, but it seems to be the hardest thing to do is to get everybody on that stage to be telling the same story, to be after the same effect. And uh, which is what's under Gregory Moshe's brilliant audience eye coming in to see the show. I mean, that's, always, that's been the finest thing about this production, is that we all have been involved in telling the same story. We weren't arguing over the purpose of meaning. We all knew what we wanted the effect of the play to be. Uh, at the same time, uh, if we were, if Stockard Channing had been a great chum since she was in the chorus of Two Gentlemen of Verona. And we had wanted uh, Stockard to be in the play. So we knew at the beginning that, that we had Jerry, and then there would be Stockard. And uh, it just built and built. And, and uh, Gregory and Bernie had hired Billy Hopkins, who I wish was here today, because he's a very, very key person in the casting of the play. Billy is a young guy in his mid-20s who is an extraordinary sense of casting, what a casting director does is, is, is it sense bring you in all tubes of paint to pick from. And so you sit there in this, you know, this underground room waiting, you know, trying to build this palette. And uh, Jerry is quite remarkable to see at casting auditions because I've never, every, every actor, Jerry had been an actor for a long time. And uh, every actor who came in, I mean, he was there with them at the audition. I mean, he was on the other side of the table too. So there's always a great sense of great moral decision to be made about who was even going to be, who was going to come back to the show. I mean, nobody was even called back lightly. It was uh, quite remarkable working with Jerry on the casting sessions of the play. You want to pick casting up there, next after you decided on yes. Jerry, mm -hmm. then casting. That's the next step. Then casting came. Well, I, think I, think Jerry, I think Jerry should say yes. what his reaction yeah, was. Absolutely, right. yes. Okay. Um, <clears throat>
this has been a great gift. It's as simple as that. You know, I recall our first meeting. It's true. I think it was in August of yeah. last year at Charlie's, and Gregory and uh, John proposed directing the play. Coincidentally, I had directed a production of it at Dartmouth College with graduate students, recent graduates, I think in 77, I think, something in 77, and had fallen in love with the play. It had just fallen in love with its values, what, it, what I felt it was about. And uh, uh, the fact that John and Gregory were proposing directing it, I, I, it, was, it was a gift, and, and I was stunned and, and very happy. And, uh, kept asking them if they, if they weren't sure that there was something else I could tell them about myself, as I recall in that meeting. Are you sure? And that we took it from there. We began immediately discussing casting possibilities, Stockard being the first name, and, and uh, then designers, of course. And it's unfortunate that Tony Walton can't be here with us because any discussion of the production without Tony is a little strange, but I'm sure we'll fill in for him and his wonderful notion for the set. Um, Tony's doing the front page at Lincoln Center right, right. now. Right. Tony Walton is doing the set for front page, which is going up even as we speak. The set is being built. Um, and uh, really, that, that took us up to casting, I suppose, once we d decided on, on, on our Tony. designers. So that's Tony, your third step then, all right? Right. Putting the okay. design team together. Uh, it was Tony Walton. And it was Walton. a very, very key thing. One of the things that I was most, the problem that we had, to, that we brought to Tony was, how do you design, I mean, we brought a very, very key central problem and something that had become even more evident in the you know in uh, space since the play was first done is how do you do a domestic comedy how do you do a, a play that takes place in a living room without having it look like a TV sitcom how do you de t television how do you de, de TVize it and not uh, in, in constant and that's what we said the main purpose the, the main problem that Jerry and I brought to Tony was you know how do you not make it look like there should be an applause sign you know I mean how do you make yeah. And, uh, well, he did it by bringing well, the all key, the queens. Right. Yes. The, the, and, and the, yes. key, the key to that, I think, is because I, I was trying to think back. It's been so long, you know, trying, trying to remember the specific steps. I think the key to that notion was your introduction to the published version where John, in a, a wonderful uh, prose piece, goes on to describe what living in Queens is like. You know, the context that the Shaughnessy family is in. And all of a sudden, the notion of what is outside the home what it represents, what it does to the inhabitants of, of the borough, and uh, became a very important issue, and I think stimulated and dominated by the great image of then of the Queensboro Bridge leading into Manhattan, and this great over this little apartment, this great bridge leading into their dreams. I mean, it was so it was quite a, a Tony. Did you sit in on the casting along with Jerry? Oh, we were both together. of you. Yes. Was there any controversy as to whether someone you thought someone? would write for the part and Jerry no or vice versa. Because we talked about this yesterday with the directors and playwrights of the role of the playwrights. I think that if you're having battles about, you're having casting battles about that, it's, it's indicative of such a larger problem and a separate problem that, uh, that it's, uh, you know, so when you say, oh, they really had a battle about who was going to be in it, mm -hmm. then you're talking about the interpretation of the play and the meaning of the play and what you want the play to be, and you're already talking about another problem that is just, problem. it just comes out, it's just mm -hmm. reflected uh -huh. in a problem of casting. And since, uh, you know, uh, we had agreed, at we were agreeing at certain uh, ground floor levels that uh, we never had, I can't, no, no. I, I mean, we, we discussed shadings and, and slight differences in personalities, but the fact is I, I couldn't see myself rehearsing with someone that I knew John had essentially 
vetoed. You know, mm -hmm. I, it mm -hmm. just just wouldn't work. The it's amazing thing was that I must say is for the you know for the part of bananas, uh, Jerry said, "I see Susie Kurtz very clearly. I mean, I just see Susie Kurtz in this role." And Susie came in to see us, assuming that we wanted her, that had been a mistake from her agent, and that we, we wanted to see her for Bunny. Because she said, I've never played a part. And we said, no, we want to see you for Bananas. And she said, really? And she was extraordinary. I mean, just a great lesson for actors because she gave, she just did a cold reading then of the play. And she said, I really don't understand this in the sense. I mean, I've done it all wrong. I don't know what. <coughs> Jerry said, just trust me. And she did. Yes. And it's extraordinary. That was one of the most extraordinary things of seeing an actress come in and say, where, where do the I? trouble comes from, not from the, the actress and you see me. To yes. this part, I assume you want me for the other part, really, and uh, so that was what was really uh, gratifying to watch Jerry at work, not convincing her, but just gaining, just having her trust. We played, we played. It's as simple as that. Had she not, and had she not read, I don't know that we would have known that uh, uh, she could do what she's clearly doing. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, uh, uh, it's a testament to Spoos that uh, she said, "Sure, let's try it." You know. I, She's see, a Tony winner, too. I think we have to back up a little bit because we're presuming yeah. a certain amount of information that the audience has That's that right. they don't necessarily right. have. And I think that what we have to say is that The House of Blue Leaves was originally produced for the Mitzi E. Newhouse Theater at Lincoln Center, which, which is, is a 300-seat house. And we had, we, Lincoln Center Theater, intended to run it for the eight weeks that we had originally planned. No, but six weeks, hoping six we weeks, got two weeks And hoping we'd have two weeks <laughs> more. <laughs> yeah. And what happened was that when the play opened, it proved to be extremely popular with audiences. So we immediately said we were going to run beyond the six weeks, and we made sure that the cast was available. And shortly after we had made that decision, the critics arrived. And the critics found the play even more to their favor, to our favor, than we had. I mean, we loved the play. They loved it even better, if that were possible. So it was their, it was almost their move that dictated that the play did not have enough seats or enough time in the 300-seat theater. So it was moved. There happened to be the Vivian Beaumont Theater right on top of the Mitzi Newhouse Theater, dark and available to us. And so uh, a very complex decision was made to move the House of Blue Leaves up to the Beaumont. I have to interrupt you at this part because usually at this point when you've got your cast and everything is all assembled and even you're even one step further, you're in a theater. But normally we then talk about, in the production, we then talk about money. How you raise the money and where, what, how many auditions you did to get the money and, and, and what was the general contract and the various things. You do not have that at the Beaumont. You do not we have do not that at Lincoln money? Center. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh my, bite my tongue. <laughs> no, so what? therefore, would you explain the difference that you have come up from Chorus Line, for example, what is the difference in operating cost? How do you work in, from that oh. up to Lincoln Center? In a very few words, what in makes this different? In a very few words? Yes. Yeah. What makes well, this different? Because it is on money, it is that, gritty. Before we do right? that, just let me finish the course. Okay. Because the audience that is listening to the program will think that, what's, what are they talking about? This play is at the Plymouth Theater. Well, How we're going to get, get to the, the three Plymouth moves. Theater? Yeah. And the point that I want to make very, very quickly is that what happened the roller coaster ride of the House of Blue Leaves, all of which uh, we have uh, ridden, 
has been from the Mitzi Newhouse to the Vivian Beaumont, and then when the Vivian Beaumont was no longer available to us, because the regular Beaumont season was about to commence, the House of Blue Leaves moved to Broadway on October the 14th and, had, and began its Broadway run at that time. But I think that uh, one of the things we should do, Gene, is hear from the other people uh, who were involved in all of these stages, from Merle Dubusky, who was press yes. rep, was a key uh, factor in moving the play along, and Jim, who was responsible for the advertising of the play at all stages in the original image. Then, Isabel, I think what you were alluding to is the difference between a for-profit individual production right. and how a theater institution does all the same things that a, uh, a for-profit Broadway producer does. And we'll come to that. Well, you yeah. say it so well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. So then okay. we'll, we'll turn to Merle Dubusky. Yeah, and, and give give Merle and Jim a shot. Yes. <laughs> and, and how you started your campaign. Who came first, Merle or you? Merle first. Merle. Merle first. Merle, Merle first. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, two things. Firstly, uh, it was a unique opportunity for me because I had had the good fortune to represent the play when it was first done, and it was quite extraordinary in its time because it was the cutting edge of a kind of dramatic writing uh, that blossomed after, but it was in its day the cutting edge, or a cutting edge. And for me, it's like being a youth and having a marvelous relationship, an affair with a fantastic other party, and have it end, and then some 15 years later, there's somebody you're going to meet in that other room, you know who it is, and you wonder what will that person be like 15 years later? What will the relationship, what could the relationship be? And then you open the door and you go through, and my God, it was even better than it was the first time. <laughs> and that is indeed rare in one's uh, life, whether it's on the stage or in the parlor. So that was quite marvelous experience for me, and it doesn't happen too often in the life of a press agent. Uh, I had a, a strange circumstance when we did the play because you must understand that these plays of that which we speak are not done in isolation. That first comes the theater because the plays will sooner or later leave and the institution goes on. So uh, everything that we do connection with an individual play is hooked on to the it's like a branch of a tree, and that trunk uh, has to be respected. And when we began this project, the Lincoln Center had a long, if not illustrious, history. And we picked it up, and there was a lot of finger-pointing at uh, what are these guys going to do, and who do they think they are that they can succeed when all the other significant people couldn't. Uh, and that looking at this group uh, varied from disdain to uh, great hopefulness. Uh, certainly nobody was certain that we would be able to do what nobody had done in the past. I, as a press agent, was uh, instructed, well, was instructed, we talked about it, and we decided that the best mode for this new administration to begin with was to be quiet. And it is significant that 
when you have two theaters, one as big as a Beaumont and one as small as a new house, if you are going to start up again, there was an enormous uh, surge on the part of all our friends uh, and not so friendly acquaintances who said, you can't do it in the new house. You've got to start up in the Beaumont. I mean, you're lifting a dead weight. Uh, there is a monolithic darkness around there. It has been the bane of the theater. You can't start small. Our attitude was, we're going to do it the way we think we should do it, for numbers of reasons. Uh, the administration wasn't in place too long before they had to begin. I think uh, Bernie, I think about July was July when this administration was put together, and we were opening that fall, so there isn't too much time, especially when you're faced with the problem of raising an enormous amount of money. So. We elected that we were going to do this our own way. We were going to do this step by step. We were not going to say who we are. We were not going to say we are the salvation. Uh, we were a couple of guys around who had uh, a, a great affection for the theater and its people. And what we would do is little by little, we would try to build an edifice based on doing one play at a time. And we weren't going to crow. So. With that attitude and this play on, there were two things. One, we didn't want to over-exploit anything. Uh, we were faced with the fact that this was a, a revival and there was always a possibility of there being a, a recollection in people's minds of what it was. And so we were playing it delicately all along the line. And once the play opened, uh, the press agent was like a hunting dog <laughs> when the shot has been fired and the quail is down and the dog, you can see them, they start to get a quiver, but they're well-trained and disciplined and they don't move until somebody says, go. And I was quivering a lot. As a press agent, uh, my nostrils were uh, being assaulted with the opportunity well, to have a good who, time. Did you say go? Who oh, made that decision no, to go? You couldn't, well, because there's, a, say there's a question of money. We have to get into this of, of how you have a budget for it. Now, this, part the, of this. the cheapest part of any adventure, whether it's the nonprofit institutional theater or the commercial theater, the cheapest expenditure for a potential return, not always, but a potential return, is that salary which is paid to the loyal, faithful, responsible press I agent. understand. Right. So, uh, <laughs> Earl says this as the president of the union. Yes. <laughs> Despite that. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, it, it was an understanding, and uh, everybody's sensibilities were involved here, and we didn't want to embarrass anybody. Uh, but there was a general agreement that once the outer world had established the uh, marvelous happening there, that uh, it would not be indelicate or immodest of us to begin to move along. And we did have a um, schedule. We knew where a particular stop on this train was, and we wanted to get there. And so we had to root ourselves there. And that was, uh, we felt, all of us, that it would be lovely if this show could achieve some recognition in the area of the Tony Awards. So we then began to move along to begin to exploit all the marvelous individuals who were happily in our grasp, uh, which was a minor problem in that they were also marvelous. 
truly as people as well as performers that we try to keep everything in balance so that no one person leap way out ahead of the other uh, and we tried to 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 do that uh, we did take advantage of the circumstance we did fully exploit the play particularly when we decided that there was another life there was a larger auditorium to be filled uh, we had to build up more pressure from the public and at that point did we begin to exploit the play as fully Jerry, as we could. Excuse me, you're the one that really should direct this but when you're not opening your mouth I'm going to because I want Jim to come in on this we have a limited amount of time so could we get you I, into I the work in 30 now? second units yeah. so I was that first of all I want to disavow any credit for doing any of this advertising uh, it really is a communal thing. Bernie, you know, we had this terrific idea that uh, House of Leaves is about the 60s, so we're going to do nostalgia, and I heard a radio commercial in my head of John F. Kennedy speaking, and Jackie Kennedy, and all of the names of people, the Pope who came to the Yankee Stadium. Uh, somebody else wanted Icarus, there's a, as the theme, the notion that all these characters are looking for some great escape, and Icarus is the perfect image for this. We'd have Artie, Artie Shaughnessy as Icarus flying through the sky, and then I said, yeah, with all the 1960s people looking up at him. And uh, Bernie said, no, it's about a guy playing a piano. He just wants to be a piano player. <laughs> and there's the poster, you know. And it really, uh, uh, so I disavow, although I was part of, one of the good things about having somebody on a team who was always wrong is that you know which way not to go. So, <laughs> so I think I filled that role pretty good on this. <laughs> and we just thought about posters we'd seen in the past. We'd love the comedians. Yeah. Posters, yeah. a play by Trevor Griffiths that Mike Nichols had done on Broadway with John, with John Jonathan Price many years ago. And we always loved, we all of us loved that poster. So Bernie called yeah. up Jim McMullen who had done that post, who had designed that, that poster. Right. Yeah. He says, the guy playing the piano this way. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was about yeah. body language. Right. And, it, and Jim is a, a, a terrific artist, actually undervalued in, in the theater, doing more and more work for Lincoln Center Theater, doing terrific work. What was your yeah. change in budget from the Mitzi Newhouse up to Beaumont? What was the what? Change in budget. Oh, the change in budget. From Mitzi Newhouse well, up to Beaumont. The, uh, did you, how much of the financing of the play do you want to do? I, uh, as much as you can tell us. Presented. Well, you're it, not, we're not asking for figures, no, but no, part of this is but what it that, takes to produce. I think that the audience that listens mm -hmm. to this program knows the difference between an institutional theater and a private for-profit producer. I used to believe that nobody knows anything. They want to hear it again. No, they love to hear it again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like to tell have me it again. Tell me about the rabbits, George. That's right. <laughs> well, the way the rabbits work. <laughs> Lincoln Center Theater is a not-for-profit institutional theater. It just happens to be a brand new one, trying again at the Vivian Beaumont. And uh, the House of Blue Leaves is one of a series of works that have taken place there in the course of the last nine months, the last year, and more are coming along uh, on a regular basis. And the next one up is the front page. We finance the institution. We seek uh, funds in support of the institution. We are uh, performing arts organization that earns about 50 to 55 percent of our annual budget at the box office and at the parking garage and 45 to 40 percent of our budget is raised from corporations individuals foundations and the government that essentially is the same story that the Metropolitan Opera and the Philharmonic and the New York City Ballet and all the performing arts organizations tell and the only variation is that we do works that from time to time prove to be more popular in the case of the New York Shakespeare Festival, it's Edwin Drood or a chorus line. 
And what's just note noteworthy, I suppose, is that the new Lincoln Center Theater, by the second time it got up at bat, produced a play that also proved popular and has and will earn revenue in support to support the not-for-profit institution. The change in budget from the Mitzi Newhouse to the Vivian Beaumont and then again to the Plymouth had to do with the fact that actors who work at below living standard wages in little theaters, in 300-seat theaters, and then when they play not-for-profit thousand-seat theaters, get a little improvement in wages. Uh, they and the other workers in the theater, when they're working in a thousand-seat theater on an extended run, get essentially the same wages that they would get when they were or are on Broadway. And that's essentially the difference. The differences are that there are living wages paid at the Beaumont and mm -hmm. uh, actors can live like human beings for that period of time that they're so engaged. Bernie, I just had a question to ask you. As the, the Beaumont has to share expenses with the rest, just the whole complex of Lincoln Center. Are that's there, too complex a concept. Too, no. But it is true, is it? Yes, it is it true. Is true. What, what John is alluding to is that the Beaumont has to pay for shoveling snow from around the fountain. Yeah. And, okay. then, yeah. and keeping yeah. the, uh, the beautiful reflecting pool clear of litter. Yeah. Those are the costs of being at Lincoln Center. I, I okay. don't think that's I'm, I'm going to keep going. Um, after all, they keep Schubert Alley clean. Yeah. <laughs> and we pay for that. Yeah. Yes. When you're, when you're at, at the Plymouth, for example, do you pay anything back as royalty to the Beaumont, to the Lincoln Center? Uh, we will as soon as we've recouped the cost of the move. It costs $300,000 to move from the Beaumont to the Plymouth. Once we've recouped that, then we will pay Then the percentage back. goes back. Yes. In a sense. Is yeah. that standard and will that be standard? No, there are no standards. All these things are, are separate and individual. Mm -hmm. The point is that the move of the House of Blue Leaves to the, to the Plymouth is our move. We are the producers of it and mm -hmm. we are the managers of it. Nobody else is making money on it. Any money that is made other than by the actors and the, uh, uh, yeah. the author and yeah. everybody else mm -hmm. will come to the not-for-profit institution. I see. And why did it cost $300,000? It cost $40,000 in scenery, $50,000 in advertising, $75,000 for stagehand costs. It cost all those things. A week of a press agent salary. <laughs> 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 but it's worth it? Yes, of course it is. Just but a series of costs. But, you know, the public always wants to know it's the same show and all you're doing in their minds is to just move it. Yes, you, you just know? move it, but it doesn't move by itself. No. And so what happens is a bunch, some 35 stagehands take the set down and put it on trucks and the trucker has to be paid and the truck drives the 20 blocks down to 45th Street and then some 35 other guys load all the stuff in and uh, that's, that's about nine days work, eight days work the process of moving it out, trucking it down, loading it in, focusing the light, and it's not only seven or eight days, but it's also seventy odd thousand dollars. Different worth. scales of unions as well? In, not in different cost? from the Beaumont, essentially. Not different, the same, same no. thing from the Essentially Beaumont. the same. Uh -huh. okay. The great sight was when they were loading into the Plymouth. Because I, I was walking by the street just in a How many seats are the Plymouth? A thousand forty. The same as the Beaumont. Same as the Beaumont. Yes. What's the ticket? Uh, just a, a tad mm. higher. Nearly Broadway prices, we call them. Mm -hmm. It's a $35 top, $32.50 weekend, weekdays, 35 weekends. No, but to walk down and suddenly to see all of Queens laid out on the street, it's like the bomb is dropped on 45th Street. It's a great, great image. I want to observe one thing that I think is part of the, the success of this show, uh, from the public's point of view, why, they've, why there's an audience that's, that's coming regularly, and that's that uh, the professionalness of the production, that that uh, it's, I think, really done on the notion that cheap is dear in the end, that there was really not, uh, you know, 
I mean, just from my point of view, from the advertising point of view, if, if I said, well, you know, with this budget, gee, let's run a, a, a quarter page ad with all these terrific reviews, and Bernie would say, no, full page, you know, <laughs> put them out there. Let's really, you know, oh, this is a class act. Well, you know, the flip, uh, <laughs> the flip side of that, Jim, is also, is that if it had been a regular commercial producer, I know other people have optioned the play since its original uh, production, hoping to get, you know, for revival, they say, what star can play it? We've got to get... We have to get this star, we have to get this star, we have to do it with the star, we'll do it we'll revive with the star. And Bernie and Gregory say, no, get the best person for it. And I think that one of the main, you said, you asked if Jerry and I had any difficulties, you know, casting. It was never any battles between us, it was only anxiety about who would play Artie Shaughnessy. And then we found this man, John Mahoney, at Steppenwolf in Chicago. And, uh, and brought him in and just said, well, there we are. Well, there were very, very few producers who would recognize, A, that this man is not only just right for the part, but, but uh, must be trusted with carrying the play. And that was the extraordinary thing that Bernie and Gregory did, was trusting the, the lead in a play to a man who was essentially unknown in New York. If you were to do the play originally at the Plymouth right now without having the Beaumont, would you be able to go with no stars? Other than Susie, of course, is an, 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 but could you, could you have the that? The same feel. I'll uh, tell you something. The, the, the feelings of I think it would be very almost impossible. A would cost so much more money to open it up so, because one of the things that's very very key is that we did not have those financial pressures of a producer. If you're opening at the Plymouth, pacing the back saying I've got a seven hundred thousand dollar show, a million dollars invested in this. Come on, get uh -huh. to it, hurry up. Uh -huh. I think that the level of Bernie Gregory saying we will open the play when we're ready to open. We did a few weeks of previews. We watched <laughs> and watched and watched it grew, and a, and a company feeling was there, there was no none of those pressures put on to. Onto the actors, no, onto us. The only concern, the only concern yeah. was really doing the play as well as possible, and, and 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 there was never really even any discussion about a possible move from the new house. That uh, this was all frosting on the cake. And it Nobody imagined really, it. No, not it was at all. Not imagined. And I think that if we'd open at the Plymouth, mm. a, a, a level of desperation seeps into everybody's performance that makes it a different, mm -hmm. makes it a different event. That makes the work just smell different. Have you been reviewed again at the Plymouth? Will no. you be? No. No. Uh, maybe. No. How does that? Well, the answer to the question. This is the way we, we arrive at our decision. The answer is <laughs> no. We have not. Uh -huh. uh, shall we? Is another question, and that uh, answer will be arrived at uh, on the basis of any number of considerations, uh -huh. none of which do I wish to state. <laughs> but you come into the theater with such a wonderful track record, deservedly so, too. Well, Bernie calls them over. He calls theatrons. He calls that everybody who comes and loves a show sends out waves. <laughs> comes, yeah, sends I can out feel waves. it here. <laughs> and uh, that, that's the audience. And if you've got a thousand happy people, they go out and they tell. And it's, I mean, he's really, in a way, scientifically dealing with word of mouth. I, I think that one of, the, uh, one of the interesting aspects of the move was that because the playwright, the director, the actors, and the designers all agreed to do a play in a 300-seat theater, and then the producers of the play at one point said, listen, folks, this is really terrific. We want to move it to a 1,000-seat theater. And uh, we didn't feel, we collectively didn't feel, we could say, this is what we're going to do. And I think, John and Jerry and Merle, that you should review the process of making that decision and who really decided to move it, because Merle alluded to the Tonys. 
Uh, and that was a factor in the move, because when the play was at the Mitzi Newhouse Theater, it was not eligible for Tonys. As soon as it was, because it's, a, it's excluded by the Tony Administration Committee. Well, as soon as the play moved, if the play were to move, either to a Broadway theater or the Beaumont, which is considered a Broadway theater, it would have been eligible uh, for Tonys. But the actors hadn't agreed to be exposed to Tony's, nor had the director. <coughs> it was a very complex decision. Sure. So I think mm -hmm. I should throw it back to you to, re to remember what it was mm -hmm. like when we talked about going. And Jerry, when you went up to the Beaumont yeah, yeah. and took the actors with you up there. Well, I took Tony first. First you went to Tony, Tony Wall. And the two of us mm -hmm. went up. And I, John, did, we, did you join? Yeah. I, I think, and it was as simple as, gee, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> it was, you know, it, it, the fact of the matter is that the, 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 the Beaumont is uh, a larger reproduction of the new house, I think. Uh, uh, the, the features of it, it's just larger. That's all. The basic shape is the same. And uh, we checked out sight lines. We did what we could technically to get a sense of where the play would play on the Beaumont stage. And I think once we realized that it's, it was the, the reputation of the Beaumont rather than the reality that was so dread, I suppose, and that also the awareness that the, the fabric of the production and the fabric of the play was so taut, so, so, so tight and compelling that um, I think the decision to move really became pretty simple. You know, and, and it, was a, it, was a, it was a pretty easy yes with a little bit of trepidation because things had been going so swimmingly in the new house, you know. You see, it, the play had seated itself. Uh, it was comfortable. It was playing fully. It was exploding out of the space. And we went upstairs and we thought, well, God, is the play going to get swallowed up? Are we going to lose the intimacy? Are we going to lose the sense of uh, these characters try yearning, bursting out of their, you know, their little apartment? And I don't think we lost a thing of it. In fact, after having run at the... Uh, Beaumont for several months, it was very difficult to remember what it was like, what the ex subjective experience was like in the new house, you know, and I trust that will happen at the Plymouth. What well. But Jerry, I want to remind Jerry of something, which was there was a, the operating slogan during the time that that decision was being developed was you don't screw around with success. And everybody was afraid that we had something quite perfect in the new house and that to tamper with that relationship of the audience to the play within that space was a threat. And it was well, not a simple decision. Jerry, you're remembering it as being much easier than it really was. My childhood. But the best, thing, no, the best thing is, that, again, a rare thing for producers to do is that Bernie and Gregory brought the cast over to the Ginger Man one night to, to present the problem. Did we want to move? Should we move the reputation of the Beaumont, that nothing could work there? And Chris Walken, who was playing Billy, he said, no problem, move. He said, the Beaumont's got one problem. The seats are too red. You can't get a blackout. You can't get a good blackout. So if you keep the seats filled, there's no problem. <laughs> so that was that. I mean, the meeting lasted about five minutes. I, mean, the minute that, uh, I, I recall, you know, that the original move was not to the Beaumont that the instinct of the, of the producers at the time was, you know, we, we're going to open the Beaumont next year with a new play or, a, you know, a new production. And this is premature. We only said we're going to be in the new house. So, you know, where do we come off now? We got a little hit downstairs. Move it upstairs, open the big theater, you know. Uh, so we got to move it outside. And, and really what came, I think, the final decision was, first of all, who wants to pay rent? We have the Beaumont. <laughs> Second of all, uh, uh, for the institution itself to, to keep running through the summer, you know, to have a play. And we were about to now launch a subscription season uh, for the 85, a subscription and member season for 85, 86, 86, 87. And uh, the idea was just to have people come into this theater and say, even, even if not in big enough numbers, 
but to lure them to the theater to see what we're going to do for next year. It's, that keeping the Beaumont open was probably made good sense, even though it was premature. It was sort of a preview of the Beaumont, not John, the reopening. John, did you and Tony have to do much changes either in rewriting or in redesigning the set? No, uh, I think for the, the larger the, theater. I think the most fantastic. That day that, that Jerry Zachs and Tony Walter and I went up to see the theater, it was one of the days that you were aware for the first time that the configuration of the new house and the Beaumont were indeed the same. And the minute you reali realize that, I think what's most interesting, we haven't found anybody to say anything to the contrary, but Blue Leaves is the first time that a play has been done at the Beaumont where what before had been the curtain line of the play, where the curtain had been at the Beaumont, now became was played as the back wall. So we played in an area that before had only been in front of the curtain. And it's that configuration, that direct, that dynamic relationship of play to audience that, uh, that was uh, strengthened at the Beaumont. It forced the actors, since so much of the play is addressing the audience, that that size forced them to uh, a more heroic style of acting that was ultimately more comic than it was downstairs. But, uh, no, I think that... How, it was four feet wider on each side is Something all like that. People had to take three steps instead of one and a half. But know? we changed the sofa. The, the sofa, did the sofa was a two-seater, <laughs> and when it got to the Beaumont, it became a three-seater. But the brilliant thing that, that Paul Gallo and Tony did, Paul Gallo, the lighting designer, was, there is a, uh, was to lower the ceiling. They put a false grid onto the Beaumont so that not only would the, the new house space be recreated, but also you would not have that cathedral effect of great, great height, but that the ceiling was lowered about 30 feet and the lights were hung off that so that you all, your eye only went to the stage, to the playing space and were not, was not lost into the, uh, into the, uh, you know, into the, the, the large upper regions of the, of the theater. Mm -hmm. So that all your eyes were forced. And now that you're at the Plymouth, does that still, are you working the same way? I think the Plymouth With the three-seater sofa? Yes, yes indeed. Actually, what, what, what we've done is, is essentially <coughs> lift the set from the Beaumont and deposit no it changes, into the proscenium. Yeah. Some minor uh, staging changes to accommodate the proscenium, where uh -huh. people, uh, you know, for purposes of blocking, avoiding blocking. The thrust coming out because of the right. balcony, you can't. So how just, much of a, yeah. of a subscription audience do you have at the Beaumont? The present subscription? We have a total what percentage. Of, we, right. totally, we have a total of 28,000 members and subscribers at the Beaumont and the New House for next year, for the new year. But tell about the club. I think, you know, the membership, the membership club. The most well, one of the, one of the new uh, forms of attending that we have introduced is uh, members of the Lincoln Center Theater. And members spend $25 a year to become a member. And with a membership card, you can go to the box office at any time for any play at the New House or at the Beaumont and get a ticket based upon availability, the best available seat for any performance during the week, uh, through the entire week, for $10. So that members can get tickets for ten dollars oh, after wonderful. they've paid a twenty-five dollar membership, and that's a minimum of seven plays this year. Anything like that can happen at the Plymouth? No. No. <laughs> no. No, because it's a single play. I understand. But members and subscribers can go to the Plymouth and get a. Uh, I forget what the price. Reduced. Is. Reduced. Somewhat reduced. Yeah. Yeah. Merrill, then is on the House of Blue Leaves now. Then you have to get the rest of the audience. That's your job on the Jim's show. Jim's job itself. too. And your we job. And Jerry's no. relatives. The <laughs> in terms of the move from the new house to the Beaumont, uh, there had to be a, a, an estimate of what 
was likely to happen based on what we already knew was happening. And uh, for whatever it's worth, having been around for a long time and having been involved with some 300 productions, it was my feeling that one such a move was uh, was possible and and uh, was likely to fill up that place based on what we could feel. The second decision that was to be made was whether indeed uh, we wished to unsheath that double-edged sword, which is to have uh, the sages of our time, known as critics, come in and tell us whether we were right or wrong. Uh, and we felt, based on our own observations of what was going on in, on the stage and what was going on uh, with the audience, not just in relationship to this play, but because you have to remember that in the theater community, the sense of what the Beaumont was, was that it was a black hole. We had some guy in there for seven years who produced one season, who kept complaining, I can't come back, I can't do another thing because the place is unplayable. Uh, so therefore, we had to go up there uh, uh, with that lurking around and then to present this play and have people make their own evaluations because they were not going to come in and just look at the play and say the play works. They're going to come in and say, not only does the play work, but the play works, but the theater defeats it. I mean, all those were the possibilities. It was our own conviction that uh, the play did work in that theater and that the theater was very hospitable and that it was a salubrious arrangement and that we were prepared to do that. Once we prepared to move the play and had moved the play, then we decided, yes, indeed, we would invite the critics in and we would face that. And that's what we did. And the reviews came out again. They were even as strong. And by now, the play was uh, in fourth gear. Because I think one of the things, Isabella, was very, again, was different from just a commercial production. That. I, it strengthened the actor's sense of, of company is, is that we felt we just weren't in a success, but we were in a success that had brought a building back to life, that we were a part of a team that, uh, that, had, uh, that was making other plays possible and was making a place for all of us to work. As Julie Haggerty is now in front page, which Jerry's directing and Tony is designing, I mean, there's a sense of a squadron being built there that uh, we all become, life becomes possible in a different way. And there'll be a continuity there, which Hopefully is important, so. that will come into the mainstream. No way to describe the thrill. I think it was the, the, the invited dress rehearsal in the Beaumont when the people lined up outside the theater. And to see people lining up to come into the Beaumont uh, was, mm. uh, was just quite a thrill. There was no announcement yeah. made. We were just no, having a dress no. rehearsal of moving up to the Beaumont. There was yeah. no announcement made. We went outside, I went outside to see if there were, you know, some friends were coming to see it, you know, where they were. And there were people snaked up across the, fa the fountain, past Philharmonic, across the fountain, over to the State Theater, out to Ninth Avenue. Oh, wonderful. And that night, the first laugh came, and Dr. Channing uh, had, had had a bad throat. And so Melody Summers, who, who uh, was standing by for Stockard, went on and has, you know, one of the first... Lie opens the sh after the prologue opens the show, and she got her laugh, and it was as if there wasn't just laughter. The sound of 1,200 people barking it was the sound of like an enormous bark, and you felt that ice to mix metaphors. Yes, but you felt that ice had cracked. That somehow that that night was like some sort of exorcism of spirits. It was. It, it, you just felt that the place was. By the end of the evening, we all felt as if every 
dust ball had been <laughs> swept out of that theater, and we were, it was starting all over again. It was, it was quite astonishing. <laughs> Who makes the decision and what percentage on whether it's media or television on, on your advertising budget? Uh, well, it, again, it's, it's a matter of budget and collective wisdom. Uh, but I thought with... Um, now that we had a lot of money to spend, we should go on television. No, a, a, an official credential of a Broadway show that's a hit is a television commercial. It doesn't have to run in the World Series, uh, but it does have to be on, I think, to, to get in there with uh, the shows that, uh, that yield more spectacle. So having learned my lesson from the poster, I suggested a singing man at the piano uh, on television. And oh, everybody thought that was a great idea. And we made a television commercial. Uh, and took a few times to get it right, but we got it right, and, uh, and it ran, and they wrapped uh, big bucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a variety headline. Wrapped yeah. big, big bucks. bucks. Do you spend more when you have the hit than when you are trying to get a hit? What's your percentage, Meryl? More well, money, I mean, more that, that, that There are so many variables, and it's difficult to ask. Uh, for instance, I also have represented Chorus Line from its inception. And 12 years later, we're still trying to maintain a uh, level of, of expense to keep the gross up to where it is. And you just have to play it with the seat of your pants. No, uh, we don't spend more on Chorus Line than a, uh, than a new show would. And it varies on time of the year, what the street is doing, what else is going on in the world, uh, what our figures show, or our advance, et cetera. And all those get weighed. And then also, can we do something that would change what's been going on for 12 years? Sorry. We're going to come back to this panel on the production and the wonderful, wonderful panelist of the House of Blue Leaves, a marvelous show. And when we come back, we will accept questions from the audience. So I hope that you have them ready, because I know I, who have been asking a lot of questions, have still more to ask. Don't go too far away, please. There'll be a short break, and have your questions ready and be sure and give it to one of the wing volunteers. These are the seminars on working in the theater. Thank you. Up you go. Thank you very much. We're back at the American Theater Wing seminars on working in the theater. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located on 42nd Street, the height, the very, very part where Times Square meets with Broadway, off-Broadway, and off-off-Broadway theater and talent. Today's seminar is on the production, The House of Blue Leaves, a wonderful show. And we have a marvelous panel here, the entire production team that made this show possible and took this house into three moves. And so without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Jean Dalrymple, our moderator, who will in turn question and continue the questioning of our panelists. Thank you, Jean. John Ware, oh, during intermission, you were talking about maintaining a play that's well, having the, a long run. It's one of the great problems of the theater that very rarely <laughs> we have to deal with. It's, what, <laughs> it, <laughs> it's about maintaining the quality of the show. I mean, the show opens up, we talk about how it is, it opens up and it's wonderful and it gets, you know, terrific response and you love it and then bit by bit as people have to move on and change or else just simple playing the maintaining of a show and I was what I, I think that uh, what impressed me most about again it's a whole new uh, 
One is very, very, uh, one is not used to long runs in the theater. One is, yes, one of the problems in the theater means is uh, maintaining one's wounds rather than just, <laughs> oh, wow, I can get up this morning. This is great. And, uh, but to have a director like Jerry who deals with this, uh, I've never had the experience of a director calling up six months into a run and comparing the Friday night performance with the Saturday matinee performance, asking me questions about it, and then going back and working with the cast again just to get... To, to find new values, to keep them alive, to keep the actors alive, or else new actors coming in to the piece, as the great Christine Baranski uh, replaced Stocker Channing, who when we began it knew that she had, would have to leave by a certain date. And Christine Baranski came in, and uh, how she became a member of the company, and the values that she had to maintain, while Jerry still not wanting her to give a carbon performance, but to find her own life in the play. And that's the extraordinary thing that, that Jerry does, is to watch Jerry and Billy Hopkins recasting the play to find the same values, as we talked about that image of the, you know, the, the, palette, the tubes of paint on the palette, to, how to get that same effect with a different tube of paint. And that's the most extraordinary. I wish Jerry would. I'd like to hear Jerry talk yes. about his patience well, about seeing a play for... First of all, it's a joy. I mean, again, it goes back to the play. You know, someone new comes in who is a craftsman. Without that, there's nothing, really, because all my willingness to work with new people means absolutely nothing if they're not willing to receive it and want to work. And in that, we've been blessed, in that the current company, for instance, the, uh, uh, the three principals, uh, Swoosey and Christine and John Mahoney, have all been doing the show now for quite a while, and <coughs> I can feel free to come in there at any performance and note certain things and talk with them, and I've never never been met with anything less than a complete openness to to work to uh, to take it apart to uh, to examine it and uh, frankly I, <laughs> the notion of giving that up to anyone else terrifies me and uh, I couldn't imagine doing it unless I were in uh, you know uh, San Francisco or something well uh, we have an actor like Danny Aiello who replaced Chris Walken and to have an actor of you know Danny's caliber you know stay in the part for such a long time it's because of Jerry's attention to his performance and the detail to keeping the show in its original its original intention. So the actors are always reminded of what it is they must be playing, what the purpose, the larger purpose of, the larger effect of the play is. It's and, so easy for things to get out of shape. You know, I mean, anyone who's been involved in, in any production, let alone a long run, knows how easy it is once an actor begins to get comfortable, then the character begins to get comfortable in a way that that character can't get comfortable. For instance, in the opening, the prologue of Blue Leaves, so much of what was w wonderful originally in, in, in John Mahoney's uh, uh, execution of the prologue was his own anxiety about getting in front of an audience and performing these songs, which suited Artie Shaughnessy's anxiety of getting... Well, three months into the run, John was getting quite comfortable with going out there and doing a couple of songs. And we lost like that... Michael Feinstein. He was wonderful. He sat down and, hey, how you doing? Okay. Yeah. And we lost that, just that little edge of desperation now. A very simple adjustment, but one that had to be called to his attention and was, and he embraced because the fact is it's more fun to have that little layer of anxiety informing that uh, prologue. It's, it, it, the stakes are just higher, and it was something that he had to be reminded of. And, and uh, it's the same kind of, it's, it's always just a matter of thousands of little tiny details being paid attention to over and over again. Uh, but it's also having a very, very good stage manager. Indeed. The stage managers have just been, Kate Stewart and Steve Becker have been terrific because they are they're very aware of what Jerry's intentions are, and they watch the play every night and give a very, very detailed report every night, which Jerry then reads, yeah. and uh, the actors are given notes. You know, so thanks to Jerry's leadership, backstage there's a very very the, the, the cast is a very very s strong idea of being kept on their toes I think that's very important 
Jerry, you have an assistant. I do. Would yes. you like to tell us what an assistant to a director <laughs> sure. really does? Sure, sure. Well, it, my current assistant is Laurie Steinberg, who is here now working on the front page. And my assistant on, uh, on Blue Leaves was uh, Danny Klein. And uh, my assistant uh, does lots of things for me, holds my hand, you know, uh, uh, organizes my life and observes and takes over certain responsibilities in my absence, making sure uh, we'll run lines with cast members on scenes that are just, I'm a stickler for precision and perfection in the words. Uh, uh, because the plays that I happen to love have a musicality in their language that just can't be duplicated by an actor's, you know, approximation. I, I don't believe in the script as a point of departure for the actors. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, well, and, and uh, that's, my assistant polices that, helps me police that, and uh, uh, does lots of jobs for me that I am uh, uh, too busy to attend to in the course of uh, production, pre-production. Things are going to get particularly hectic for us now on front page as we move into the theater and have to contend with set elements that we haven't had to deal with in the rehearsal room. And uh, delegating responsibility is not one of my strong suits. I, you know, it's, it's just something I'm learning to do and, and my assistant helps me. What is your background in coming to you? Uh, well, Laurie, uh, Laurie uh, has worked at the Ensemble Studio Theater and was a production assistant on uh, my production of Sister Mary Ignatius several years ago, and so we've known each other that way. And uh, my uh, assistant on uh, Blue Leaves was a young actress whom I had directed at Dartmouth, who came to New York and wanted to assist me. And uh, so there's, I have no set of requirements uh -huh. for people uh, wanting to as assist me on productions, as long as they understand that the primary responsibility is to observe uh -huh. and, and, uh, and to take whatever responsibilities I feel can be. Delegated. And do you give them notes to give to the actors? No. No. Never. No. You give them yourself. That's right. Very good. Right. Yes. And could I ask a financial question? Sure. <laughs> do you make money at $32? Uh, the production. And 30, and 35? Do we intend to or do we? Do we? We intend to and we do. <laughs> good. Yes. Then why do other plays charge so much? 40, I mean, for a straight play. It's not how much a play charges that determines whether or not money is made. What determines it is how many tickets are sold and what expenses are, Gene, so yes. that uh, presumably those equations are carefully weighed, but the, uh, the market factor, what, what the rest of the street is charging, always factors in. Yes, I know, I know that, but so many people say to me, I can't go to the theater anymore because it's too expensive. Well, and, the uh, fact of the matter is that although ticket prices are inordinately high, unquestionably. I think the audience also knows that there are, there are other routes to the theater. One route to the theater certainly is our membership program at Lincoln Center, when tickets after you've bought your membership are only $10. And another route that's a very, very well-traveled route is the route via the tickets booth in Times Square, where tickets are available for many, many plays on a daily basis at half price. And the tickets booth has also been one of the factors that has caused Ticket prices uh, yes. to escalate, as I think everybody Ernie, knows. Let me back a bit. You said that, uh, the cost of the ticket depends on uh, the house, how many seats in the house, and how many. And how the much cost it of costs, the production. The cost of production, but you see that there is a, a, a the, the ticket price is pretty much the same for whether there are ten characters or twenty characters in a play, or when there are three or four or five of them. So obviously there is an unwritten rule for ticket prices that there are forty-five or forty-seven. There's 35, now you've come down to 32, which is wonderful. But why, why who sets this price of tickets? It doesn't well, really have anything to do. Maybe the question, Isabel, is who determines what ticket prices are on Broadway? Is okay. that the question? And Fine. the answer to the question is ticket prices are 
decided upon by the producer and the theater owner. They are really the forces who decide. And although the producer may want to have $15 or $20 or $25 or a $30 ticket, the owner of the theater who gets a percentage of the receipts has an interest not only in maintaining a certain level of pricing and may have more experience than the producer at what will work or what will not work over any period of time, uh, but the theater owner also frequently has a group of theaters and in part defends the, the price level, not only at the theater at issue, but at other theaters, and yeah, so defends the practice on the street as well. I think that's a very producer sometimes has a one-play interest, a sometime interest. The owners of the real estate are there on a continuing basis. Do you mean the Schubert's own other theaters? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> other than which? Yeah. The way that uh, the best description was from uh, a theater owner, the best description I heard of it was, um, that if you need to gross $200,000 a week to pay for the expense of running a show and also have some profit, the first question you ask yourself is, can we sell one ticket at $200,000? <laughs> and then you say, well, that's probably impossible. We, we more than likely can sell two tickets at $100,000. And you work your way down to the point at which you say, yes, we can now sell 300 tickets. Uh, you know, for $670 a piece, and then you price the ticket. Uh, and so that's how I think, you know, it is a marketplace, there is supply and demand. At a certain price, there's less demand, and then you have, so then you put other factors into work, uh, the tickets booth being one of them, or your own uh, promotional uh, discounts, until you get uh, enough people seeing the show, supporting it with enough. Uh, what do you think that, per that performance would be, Jerry, with one man but $200,000? <laughs> <laughs> We should do a good show tonight. He found that man. They wanted to take for a hundred thousand. But in, in no other business that oh, I know dear. of is it based on, on so loose an assumption. This is what you have to pay for your last price at, at, no, at, at the fish at market buying. works the same way. Usually it's a market three times over markup, four times over market, and whatever it might be in the book publishing business or in retail business, there is a certain a third over, two-thirds, three-thirds. This seems to be on what you've just said, which is a very good explanation the first time we've had one as, as lucid as that. We've got I, a million of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had time for them. We're going to turn this over now to questions from the audience, and I hope that you will be ready for the first question. I hope you're ready to answer them. My name is Faye Gold. Isn't the manner in which this play evolved similar to the way an American national theater would function? Uh, wouldn't it be great if other groups could be helped to function the same way who do not have your resources or facility? Well, even in the times that they've been open, I mean, that Gregory and Bernie have brought over five plays from South Africa, have uh, done the Spalding Gray, uh, three Spalding Gray plays. Right now, from, uh, 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 they're doing a Julie Tamar musical event. Uh, it's astonishing the amount of energy. I think better than just, I think what that word means in American National Theater really is just sort of a catchphrase that's good for people to say. Does it make really, it has a sense of a monument. I think what they're trying to build is something that's just alive all the time. Oh, no, we want to be the New York City National Theater, actually. <laughs> okay, great. And build, and I'm going to, and build the company within that. No, no, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Neil Berg, and this question is for Jim. I'd like to know how you got involved in theatrical advertising and what kind of background do you have? Chance to tell my life story. Uh, 
as a small boy, I woke up. I uh, was dating a woman who worked at the New York Shakespeare Festival. And, uh, <laughs> and a course line opened, and I saw a commercial, and I said, gee, you know, uh, you, you all, it's so unique down there. And I saw a commercial, I saw an ad. It looks like every other ad. Every, there doesn't seem to be anything special here. How can you show up, you know, at work with that kind of advertising? And uh, she said, tell Joe. So the fellow I was working for at the time and I went down to tell Joe. And uh, they're both kind of, uh, you know, one's a match and uh, one's a matchbook. And these guys met and, you know, it, it became a relationship. Uh, we were always striking out and he was <laughs> And that's how, really. And that's how I met Bernie. This, is, I guess, goes back 10 or 12 years. And, is that uh, answer for you? Well, 12. Should Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. C.A.R. Smith, the question is for Mr. Zacks. I was wondering, as I am a character actor who has never wanted to direct, and I hope that's not for want of brains and nerve, I was wondering where your transition was and what was the impulse to move from your acting career to directing? It was a happy accident. I, I, um, I was acting in, 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 a, in something, and I, I, don't remember, I don't even remember what it was, when a, a fellow member of the Ensemble Studio Theater uh, suggested uh, that I direct a piece that he wanted to play a role in, actually. And, and, and I agreed because I, I guess I'd always uh, resented being told what to do by people that I suspected I could, you know, I, could, I felt I could do it better, I suppose, you know. <laughs> Difficult to communicate that to a director when you're acting in a play. And I, 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 uh, risky. Very risky. Yeah. <laughs> and very frustrating, you know. And, and so I, here I had the opportunity to uh, give it a go, you know. And, and uh, I had a ball. I had the most wonderful time. Matter of fact, Melody Summers, who is standing by now in, in, in House of Blue Leaves, uh, was a member of the cast of that, m my first directing project. And it was, it was a party. It was a ball. We had, uh, uh, it was a play called The Soft Touch by Neil Cuthbert, about eight characters, I think, uh, real certified loons, every one of them. And we had a wonderful group of, uh, what's the word, uh, willing actors who wanted to work. And it, ma it, you know, it makes directing just such a joy. And, but Jerry, uh, somebody said when you were in Greece that you would discuss the production, the performance every night. I was and they terrible. <laughs> I was, yes, you know, I had been in the production of Greece on, on Broadway for about 10 months. Well, after 10 or 12 months, your bits of business become very precious, very precious. And, and uh, we, were re we were experiencing replacements and things weren't quite as tight as they had been. And I must have been insufferable to be around, I, I, you know, in, in attempting to keep it tight. So anyway, yeah, that's... that's <laughs> Thank you very much. That's Thank how it started. My name is Amy Ball, and my question is for the playwright. You said it had taken you a few years to know how to write the second act of Blue Leaves. Yes. How did you figure it out, and should the audiences that saw it the first time around ask for their money back? <laughs> yes. No, the text didn't change. I said from 19... No, no, you didn't listen. As usual, people make up their own questions and answers and refer to that. No, I said the play was done in 1966. The first act was ready. I knew what the events of the act two were to be, but it took me three and a half years to develop the technique to be able to write what is now the third act, what is now the second act of the play, and then the play opened up in 1971. There's not one change. There's literally one short exchange has been cut from the play because in the round that it was just a blocking thing. But the play is exactly the same text. There's no changes in the text. I was talking from a completely technical point of view. This is that the act, second act of the play is written in a very, very tight, farcical style. And it took me a long time to, it took me three and a half years to learn to, to write having that many people on stage and covering them. Mm. 
But it's substantially the same play that the audiences back then. Saw. I don't understand. But I've just sixty-six. From sixty-six. You had no. No, I just. Oh, I said there was no second act. Mm -hmm. I only did the first mm -hmm. act at the O'Neill in 1966, which has three people in it. I knew what the events of the second act were, and it took me three years to write that. Oh. But it was never performed. Oh. Thank you. And nothing that's changed from Act question. One either in 1966. I mean, that's, that's yes. I'm Shelley Oranger, and as an actress, this is for Bernard Gersten. I've always been told that the most uh, difficult part of any production is raising the money. How does it differ between raising the money for a profit or non-profit, and who paid for the $300,000 move? Uh, let me answer the first part, what the difference is between raising money for non-profit institutions and raising money for plays. I am never absolutely certain why people invest in the theater, in the commercial theater. Somewhere, well, when I say I'm not sure, I know that people have been doing it in the commercial theater over literally uh, scores of years and partly there is always the, uh, the the thought at least that you may be investing in something like Oklahoma or something like uh, I don't know I can't think of the other one that's quite like that life with father uh, one that will be an inordinate hit or one that's like Neil Simon for example today one that will be an inordinate hit and for every dollar that you invest you or, or the fantastics that for every dollar you invest, you will get twenty or thirty dollars back, and that's a, a remarkable, uh, a remarkable return on your investment. But the fact of the matter is that most of the money invested in commercial production is lost, and people take their tax, uh, their tax write-off as a business loss. What I think is superior about the not-for-profit institutions and about the charitable gifts that are solicited and given to them is that on the day that you give the gift you get your tax exemption and you don't have to worry about a thing. You don't have that period of anxiety. You get your, it, the loss is immediate. But, but we all know, we all know that the giving of charity is not losing at all. It's a genuine gain. And then we spend a good part of our lives persuading people to that purpose. Yeah, anyway, that, that's, the, that's the difference between the two kinds of... Uh, and who paid for the $300,000? Uh, how much would you mind if I didn't tell you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Hi, my name is Marilyn Fowler, and my question is also for Mr. Gersten. Um, I'm a student in arts administration, and I want to work in the not-for-profit sector. What would you suggest would be the best way to break in? <laughs> uh, the best way to break in is any place you can. There, there is no rule. I, I, don't, I, don't, I never know how anybody breaks into the theater because it seems that the number of people at any moment attempting to break in is legion. Uh, I was saying to someone during the, during the break that uh, NYU, I know that NYU has a theater, an undergraduate theater program with some 800 students in it and that across the country there are over a thousand theater programs at universities. And I think that there's some profound and complex mystery involved that everybody in the universities, everybody interested in the theater knows something that I don't know. Otherwise, good judgment would prevail on the part of that mass of people and they would go somewhere else. So they know that in the next 20 to 50 years, the theater is going to bloom in some profound way that is not yet apparent to us. And they're preparing. How you break in is through any crevice, through any unlocked door on any level you can, and whether it's an assistant to Jerry, I'm certain that about two million people are going to apply, Jerry, to be your assistant <laughs> as a result of this Do you want your phone number, today. Jerry? Flash <laughs> <Because, okay, laughs> right yes. Anyway, there, there is no answer. There is no clear-cut answer. 
I was remembering that my first job in New York was at the American Negro Theater some great number of years back, and I remembered it because the founder of that theater, Abram Hill, died about two weeks ago, and I read his obituary. And I broke in uh, on 126th Street uh, many years ago. I didn't, I didn't plan it, but they were very happy to have somebody who would work for nothing at that time, and that's where I broke in. And that is no less true today than it was uh, some years ago. Are there places where people are glad to have someone work for nothing now? Yes. Sure. <laughs> off off Broadway? Yes. Off Broadway still? Yes. Or for little amounts of money, essentially the nature of beginning employment in the theater, in the performing arts, is self-subsidized. You yeah. subsidize yourself, or somebody subsidizes uh, the theater itself. Yes, my name is Michael Heichlin. My question is for John. Can you explain the difference, please, between an off-Broadway and a Broadway uh, dramatist contract and how that affects the royalties? Well, it's all on the number of seats. I mean, the, the, the only what uh, determines of a Broadway play and an off-Broadway play is the amount of seats that you're playing to. And uh, so, I mean, just, I mean, right there, um, it's uh, the contract. Often the Dramatists Guild, the organization which represents the interests of over 8,000 playwrights, lyricists, and composers in America and Great Britain, of which I am a proud council member because it's the organization, it's not a union. We don't function as a union. Where the, the difference, I'll, tell you, I'll answer your question in a more roundabout way because there is no off Broadway, uh, firm off Broadway contract as such yet. We're in the pro because of all the difference the sizes of structure, the sizes of theater. Anyway, that's a, it's a very complex question. But the main, the great thing about working in the theater is, and how the drama skill protects us, is, is that the simple fact is, is that the playwright owns his own play. When you write a movie, you're paid up front, but in payment for that, the producer owns your work and can do anything they want to it. Uh, working in the theater, you get paid after the fact. <coughs> and in for taking that gamble on your own work, then you own your copyright, and nobody can do anything to your play. You can't have a director. You can't a, pro a producer. Only leases the rights to use to to uh, produce your play for a certain length of time. And as usual, uh, I mean, whatever the the contract is about payments, you said. Is that what your question yes, was? It's always about how many people show up, and you get a percentage of that, and that is negotiated uh, with. Uh, you know, with your producers. The main thing is, is never to have, uh, you know, and usually if, the, you know, when, when royalties go down or, you know, the business is off, the, the playwright is always the first one who's asked to waive his royalties. For some reason, it's if they say, well, you wrote the play already, you can, the actors, you know, the equity does not allow actors not to be paid, but uh, playwrights are always the first asked to waive their royalties. Uh, as usual, it's always based on a complex uh, uh, percentage of how many people show up. And uh, simple as, yes, I hope that answers your question. One more question. Uh, you've told us how to get involved in the theater any way we can, but how, but how to get out of the theater? How do you become a press agent? In two sentences, Marilyn, that's all we have. Uh, my only suggestion is don't. I mean, if most people <laughs> I know did it. Uh, the word inadvertent probably is as significant in the instance of how most people get to be press agents, as any I know. There is no rule. There is a union, and we do have an apprentice program. So one can approach being a theater press agent by uh, a, uh, going to the union and getting involved in the apprentice program. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for being here. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theater Wing. 
and these are the seminars that the wing produces called Working in the Theater. It is our intent to try and give you an insight into what it takes to be part of the workers in the theater. From the performance panel to the playwright director panel to today's panel discussion in which you've learned and listened to those who know what it is to produce in the theater. It is Bernard Gersten, who is president of the Lincoln Center Beaumont. Is that the way we give you your title? Lincoln Center Theater. And the production cast of House of Blue Leaves, a wonderful, wonderful play that's been dis discussing amongst themselves and to our audience how House of Blue Leaves came about and of the three, the three moves and what it involved from each one. These seminars are just one of the year-round programs of the American Theater Wing coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York on 42nd Street. Thank you very much for being here.